You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you. My name is Matt Tolander. I'm the leadership development pastor on staff at Midtown, and I have the privilege this morning of wrapping up our series that we've been in for the last few weeks called The B-I-B-L-E, Is That the Book for Me? If you didn't grow up in church, you don't get that joke, but that's a song that a lot of us sang in Sunday school growing up uh, that was meant to teach us that the Bible is supposed to be an important part of our spiritual life. And so what we've been doing the last few weeks is just trying to explore some of the reasons why we think the Bible is trustworthy and reliable and authoritative in the lives of believers. And what we're going to do this week is I am attempting to answer the question, why do I need the Bible or why do we need the Bible? Which is a little bit like answering the question, why do plants need sunlight and water? Um, The Bible is that critical, I think, to our spiritual growth process. And just like plants, without sunlight and water will never grow into the fullness of what God created them to become. If we don't have a regular practice of being formed by the scripture, then we're also not going to grow into the fullness of what God has created us to become and the destiny that he has for each one of us. So what I want to do this morning is answer this question uh, by looking at the idea of spiritual formation as it's communicated in the Old Testament, and then we'll also look at the way Jesus interacts with this idea in the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and before we look at our text, let me just give you some narrative context for what's going on when we enter the story here in Deuteronomy 6. If you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you know that the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt for many years. And God set the nation of Israel free from slavery in Egypt and promised to establish them as a nation. Now, there's a few different things that you need in order to have a nation. First, you need a leader. And God had given them a leader named Moses. That's the book of Exodus. You also need laws to have a nation. And God had given them the law. That's the book of Leviticus. And the last thing you need in order to have a a nation is you need land. You need a place to be. And God had promised that he was going to take the nation of Israel to a land that was going to be theirs, where they could live and set up God's community. And so once they're freed from slavery in Egypt, they wander through the wilderness just a little while until they get to the land that God had promised. And God says, okay, we're here. Wheels up. Let's take the land. And the Israelites say, well, first we should probably send in some scouts to check it out. So doubt enters the equation. They send some spies into the land. The spies report back the land is beautiful. It's perfect. It's everything that God had promised us. There's some big, scary people living there, though. And so the Israelites say, well, in that case, maybe we can't do it. They start to doubt. And so God says, well, have it your way. We'll circle back to this again in 40 years. He sends them out into the desert, and for 40 years, they wander in the desert so that the entire generation that doubted God can die, and so the new generation can take their place. That's the book of Numbers. And so once this has happened, the the older doubting generation has died, and the new generation has grown up. 
the leader Moses takes them back to the edge of the promised land and he reiterates the law. He gives them the law a second time. And that is the book of Deuteronomy. It's a series of sermons from Moses pleading with the people not to throw away their shot, not to blow the second chance, not to make the same mistakes that their fathers and their mothers in the previous generation made. And he needs to give them the law a second time. That's why the book of Deuteronomy is called Deuteronomy. It's from a Greek compound word that means second law. So in our text this morning, Moses is speaking to this new generation of Israelites about the reality of God and about the purpose that God has for them and about the sort of practice that they will need to have if they want to see that purpose realized in their spiritual life. And the verses that we're going to look at this morning are maybe the most important verses in the Old Testament, especially if you're part of the Jewish faith, because they are the, the quintessential expression of the most fundamental belief and commitment of Judaism. And so we've got really cool stuff to talk about this morning. Let's look at it together. Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Moses is speaking to the people. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You might be able to translate it, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. What Moses is doing in this first verse, verse 4, is he is redefining reality for the Israelites. He's redefining reality. There's one God. There's not many gods. God is not just part of a pantheon of gods. He's not just the best of many gods. He is the only God that there is. This is the moment that monotheism enters into human history with the ancient Israelites and reshapes religious thought for the rest of human history. The idea is that God is not just one of many gods. God is the only God. And what that means for people in history is that God can be experienced as one who acts consistently. Because if you have a God who acts in one way for one group of people and acts a different way for a different group of people, then functionally speaking, that's two gods, not one. And why is it so important that God be consistent? It's important because of how God calls human beings to go about relating to him. This becomes incredibly important in the New Testament when you have people converting to Christianity from both Jewish and non-Jewish backgrounds. And so the Apostle Paul has to come in in Romans 3 and say, no, God is one. God doesn't treat this group of people one way and treat this group of people a different way. There's not a God of that people and a God of this people. There's not a God of that nation and a God of this nation. There's not a God of that political party and this political party. God is one. He can be experienced consistently. And he invites people to relate to him this way. Verse 5. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. So we've had reality redefined, and now in verse 5, we have spirituality redefined. Spirituality under paganism and in polytheism for the ancient Israelites was about appeasing gods. Relationship to Yahweh, to the one true God, is about loving God. And there's a difference. The word love has connotations of service and allegiance. And the reason God can be loved is because he is consistent. He is one. A, a pantheon or a plurality of gods 
cannot be loved. They can only be appeased, especially when those gods sometimes seem to disagree with one another, creating problems for people who are trying to be allegiant to one God or the other. But our God is one, and he calls us to love him with all of our heart. That would be uh, our idea of mind. It includes our desire. The heart in Jewish thought is the control center of the inner person. It also includes our soul, which is like our being, our essence. And we're, we're required to love God with all of our strength. The Hebrew word for strength here is, is interesting. It normally functions as the adverb very. This is the only place in Deuteronomy, the author of Deuteronomy is the only author of scripture who uses this word as a noun. And so you might be able to say, love God with all of your desire and with all of your being and with all of your veryness. So <clears throat> spirituality has been redefined in terms of love and not in terms of appeasement. In other words, the gods are not angry and God can be experienced as one who is consistent and reliable. So how is this supposed to be possible then? If spirituality is redefined and if our purpose as human beings is redefined as loving God with all of our heart and soul and strength, how do we go about accomplishing this with all of our being kind of love? Moses goes on in verse chapter, uh, in verse six, excuse me. These commandments that I give you today, these commandments from God, God's law, are to be on your hearts. So what this means then is that we're speaking in formational terms. We're not speaking in terms of conduct. We're speaking in terms of character. God's intention is not to make us a group of people who behaves in a certain way. His intention is to make us a group of people who are a certain kind of person. And those are different ideas. So the idea here is that as we meditate on and memorize and obey God's commandments, our character is being formed at the level of the heart. And this is important because as people, we're constantly being formed by our experiences, not just our experiences, all of our experience, or not just our spiritual experiences, all of our experiences are forming us into the people that we are and the people that we will be. And if we aren't intentional about being formed by the wisdom of God, then we will be formed by something else. And the danger for the ancient Israelites was that they would worship and serve other gods rather than the one true God. And that's our danger today because idolatry is a perennial problem. It's a perennial problem. So just like the ancient Israelites, we're faced with the temptation to worship as gods, um, things that we worship, especially in our culture, wealth or security or political power or social influence or pleasure. All of these were consistent temptations for the ancient Israelites, and they're consistent temptations for us today as well. So how do we go about then forming uh, this love for God via interacting with his commandments and his word? Look at verse 7. Spiritual practice gets redefined here. Moses says, impress them on your children. These commands that are on your hearts, impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. 
So the idea is that these commands, this teaching, this way that God has called the people to live is to be passed down diligently from generation to generation. And it's supposed to become a key feature of relationships both inside and outside the home, which is why Moses says to talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road. It also informs the way that we approach rest and the way that we participate in the world. Uh, it says that you should talk about them when you lie down and when you get up. And to this day, um, observant Jews pray this prayer that you find in verses four and five every morning, first thing, and every evening, last thing. The next two verses go on to tell us more about what this, uh, what this formation is meant to influence. Verse eight says, tie them, the commands, as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. So this formation will change the way that we conduct ourselves. That's what hands symbolize in Jewish literature. The hand or the arm represents action. It represents agency. And so this law is meant to change the way that we conduct ourselves in the world, but also it's meant to change the way that we see the world entirely. That's why Moses said to, instructs them to bind it to their foreheads. The, the, literally in the Hebrew, it means between your eyes. Put this between your eyes. Put this right at the front of your perception. The way that you see the world needs to be the way that God sees the world. You have to learn to think the way, uh, the way God thinks. And then when this is happening, when people are being formed at the heart level and the commands of God are um, forming them into people who can love God with all of their heart and soul and strength, forming them into people whose closest relationships and their participation in the world and their rest is all informed by God's word. Um, once you've been formed into people who, uh, whose agency and whose perception of the world is shaped and informed by God's wisdom, then he says, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. In other words, these commandments should inform a societal vision for the community of God that touches the home, so that's our door frames, and touches society writ large. That's what the gates symbolize. The, the gates are city gates. None of the houses had gates at this time. So the idea is that God's wisdom, you see the order of operations here, God's word is meant to order our lives at the inner level, and then through that to shape and guide our closest relationships and that is how you get righteousness at the community and the societal level. You can't systematize righteousness without truly righteous people. And true righteousness always starts at the level of the heart. Um, I love the way that Dallas Willard describes God's intention for his community this way, uh, quoting now, the aim of God in history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included in that community as its prime sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. And this is very closely related to Jesus' teaching about what he called the kingdom of heaven. Jesus connects spiritual formation to the kingdom of heaven in the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to look at now. The Sermon on the Mount is in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And the portion we're going to look at comes very early on in the sermon. It starts in verse 17. 
Jesus is speaking. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Justin referenced this verse last week. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now leave the verses up there just for a minute, but do you see the connection? The commands were to be on the heart, Deuteronomy 6, and taught in the home and in the community. And Jesus says that's still the plan. That is still the order of operations. Greatness in the kingdom is about who you become in response to the commands of God, which is why he says in verse 20, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So do you see the similarity to Deuteronomy 6? Moses and Jesus' audiences are both standing on the edge of something large that God was about to do in their life. And just like the ancient Israelites would miss out on living in the land of promise if they didn't learn to keep God's commandments, we are at danger of missing out on experiencing the kingdom of heaven if we do not become apprentices of Jesus for whom loving God with all of our heart, soul, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves becomes second nature. That's spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity is when I effortlessly do whatever Jesus would do in this given situation if he were me. So how do we get to that point? Because that sounds like a high bar. Righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law for Jesus hearers was a high bar. It was about as high a bar as they could conceive of. So how does it become second nature? How do we become these people? We become these people by practice, by practice. I watched a really, a really great, really funny and touching movie recently called Brittany Runs a Marathon. Uh, you can guess what happens in the movie. And it's about this young, like 20 something gal named Brittany. And at the beginning of the movie, Brittany is, she's overweight, she's unhealthy, she parties a lot. And she goes to the doctor and the doctor says, look, you've got to lose some weight and you've got to get healthy because you're going to have some real trouble here. And she's scared enough that she tries to go to the gym. She realizes she can't afford a gym membership. And so someone says, well, running is free. And so she decides, overweight and unhealthy, hard partier that she is to take up running. And she stinks at it at first. She struggles. She struggles to run an entire city block. But she keeps working at it. She keeps running. Eventually, she joins a running club. And some people in the running club, they decide together that they're going to run a marathon and train for a marathon together. And so the rest of the movie is showing Brittany's transformation from someone who can barely run down the block to someone who has not just the physical capability, but the, like the mental fortitude to run a marathon. And it's a really insightful movie about process because the point of the movie is not that she runs a marathon, the point of the movie, the movie is about who she becomes as she trains to run the marathon. And I think that's like spirituality. I think that spirituality is about process. 
I think that spirituality isn't so much about what we do or what we accomplish. It's about who we're becoming as a result of our practice. And it's about the change that's taking place under the surface, maybe even imperceptibly to us. It's about submitting to the process and inviting God to change and shape us into the kinds of people that he created us to be. Because our final destiny, as the Apostle Paul clarifies in Romans 8, is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So it matters who we're becoming. The question we have to ask now is, what is really forming us? What's really forming us? What's really important to us? What are the things that I really think are valuable? What are the things that I'm really giving my time to? What's really forming us? A good way to begin answering this question, I think, would be, this is an exercise I did not long ago. You take a bunch of records and you put them on the table in front of you, not music records, like uh, life records. So you take your bank statement and your credit card statement and your receipts and you print off your internet history and you print off your calendar and you scroll through and you look at all of the texts and emails that you sent in the last few weeks or months. I think if all of us were to do that and to take a look at that data, we might get some nudges from the Holy Spirit in terms of noticing where formation is really happening in our lives. And we might get an idea of some of the places where God might be inviting us into a process of transformation with him. We're going to take communion in a moment, so have your elements ready. But before we do, I wanted to make you aware of two things that Midtown is, going to, is doing right now to help you grow in the practice of living by the scriptures. The first is if you go to our website under the resources tab at the top of the page, you'll see two links. We have a healthy habits guide and we have healthy habits videos. And these are resources that we've made in the last year to help you develop spiritual practice in your own life. So you, in those sections, you can find written guides and videos on devotional Bible reading, Bible study, and Bible memorization. And they're, they're just fantastic. Alice Collins did a great video on memorization and Brenda Christopher did a fantastic, fantastic video on devotional reading. So take advantage of that. And then also this semester, we have a new opportunity. And some of you have taken an inductive Bible study class with me before. This semester, what we're doing is we're turning the inductive Bible study class into a huddle. So we'll have limited space, but we're trying to get a group of people together who are interested in becoming um, more, more skilled readers and more skilled studiers of the scripture. And what we're gonna learn together is we'll learn Bible study methods, We'll learn more about the historical and cultural background of the New Testament. And we're also going to do a book study through the book of Galatians. Now that starts sometime this fall and space is going to be limited. So if you're interested in that, email me at the church. Um, my email address is on the website. I'd like to pray for us now before we take communion together. <clears throat> And while I'm praying, if you don't have your communion elements ready yet, you can go ahead and, and grab them. Heavenly Father, thank you for your revelation of yourself to us. I pray that you would help us not to waste the opportunities that you have for us, but that instead you would form us 
into the likeness of your son, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that you would do this as we make a practice of encountering you in the scriptures so that the world will know by our witness that you are, in fact, the one true God. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.